Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast where we talk about the world of plant molecular science and all other kinds of sciencey things that we like to talk about. Hi, I'm Joram, and with me is Stegen. <laughs> Hi. Hi, that was really well done. I know. Uh, a few right? more practices, and you'll get that right. I think that was coming <laughs> along nicely. What have you been up to in the last two weeks, Joram? We didn't um, record last week. I was traveling last week. Yeah, in chaos. I actually, I like, I looked into my calendar and stuff, and there was nothing very exciting that I did. I, the only thing that kept me busy or slightly annoyed recently was dealing with other parents for from the Kita, um, because it just told me I, I don't want to just do the parents parents complaining about other parents uh, talk right now, but it's more like showing me again the kind of bubble that I live in. The bubble where when you set out to organize an event, a very basic thing, and the question is how can we organize a little buffet where everybody brings something, like a potluck, everybody brings something, and then we sell it, and then we take the money and buy stuff for the kids. Um, how, in my bubble, people would just be like, okay, we, I bring this, you bring this, we br you bring this, I, I stand at the table and I, I will sell it, fine, Everybody done. Everybody brings potato salad. Yeah, I mean, then <laughs> we like, have like potato salad and sausages, but we're in Germany, it's fine. Um, <laughs> nobody will compl complain about the potato salad. But um, yeah, so this would, was, would, is what would happen in our bubble, uh, but in the bubble in the real world they are completely overwhelmed like other parents are just completely overwhelmed with any part of the entire concept from opening a google docs link to write down things that they could do to just having a constructive discussion about the process like instead of constantly just suggest suggesting new and more complicated things to do instead of the buffet just organizing the buffet just like Oh, what about a bouncy castle? What about uh, makeup for the kids? What about Sorry, getting... I would like a bouncy castle. I think you're the problem now. See, I was I was kind of willing. I was going to say, like, my, my first <laughs> response was... How do you make money was, on a bouncy the... castle? Plus, these are, like... Okay, so wait, 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 wait. I have thoughts. My first thought is you use the word overwhelmed. And I think, like, maybe they just legitimately are overwhelmed. Yeah, Most I mean, people they are. are. I feel like 99% of people, even those without kids, are just feeling overwhelmed all the time. And I think interacting with other people in the world, when they're being jerks, you should be like, maybe they're not a jerk. Maybe they're just overwhelmed because yeah, that's fair, <laughs> I would say. Secondly, I also completely understand being overwhelmed by technology because it's hard and I don't get it and I don't we are now t videoing each other via a different app because I couldn't work out how to log on to my Facebook <laughs> which we usually video ourselves on right now so like I, I agree with the yeah. parents our second thing and thirdly bouncy castles are awesome what the hell is your problem like why would you <laughs> why would you go against a bouncy castle like you should yes and that bouncy castle like yes and let's make sure we have a bouncy castle inside the bouncy castle so the bouncy castle can bounce in the bouncy castle while I bounce in the bouncy <laughs> castle bouncy castle like what why why are you not <laughs> i mean i agree that the bouncy castle would be nice but these these are the kind of parents who suggest a bouncy castle but then think suggesting it is their contribution to the thing and then somebody <laughs> has to find somebody who rents out a look, bouncy look, castle some organizes. people are ideas people other people are hands people like yeah. you're you've chosen to be a hands person because you're so good at all the technology and all the organization it's that's your fault for being that you're so good at things you should just be like a bit more useless at like <laughs> creating a bouncy castle and then you could just bouncy castle <laughs> yeah i think it just shows me that um like in our sort of academic bubble we have so many like low like basal skills that i take for granted that when i'm in i'm yeah even in a work context i you make such a suggestion and everybody's like constructively working towards like a simple goal like having a little bit of food for a couple of parents there um but in the real world this is already a major challenge and you have to really think about like the, the way you communicate which information you you provide how clear you make this like it's a lot more complicated than I thought it would be. And I think that's sort of my lesson to learn there, that it's not just something... I, I think my problem in this this scenario is that I always want to be like, I will just take charge and it will be done. <laughs> and then I have to like fight the urge to not just be really, really yeah. bossy to everyone around. And then, then I get frustrated because nobody does it. Nobody is really, really bossy. All of us are like fighting the urge to be bossy and nobody's bossy and then nothing gets freaking done. Yeah, or... 
three people are bossy at the same time working in parallel and then just creating yeah but very i can bad. be bossier <laughs> i can i can imagine that and more pa- now now i've been in the uk for a bit so i can be like both direct from my <laughs> german cliche um and passive aggressive from my british cliche you know and, and very australian i guess from what's the, the cliche <laughs> I was gonna. I think Lots lazy is uh, really, yeah, like lazy and profanities. Is the what have you done? What probably. like you? You probably did something more exciting than being annoyed at other parents. Yeah. So so last week, I mean, I was just busy last week. Um, but the the weekend before, like last weekend, it was really nice. I met up with some friends, um, around here, and the weekend before, we had Queen Queen birthday, which I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mention before. Um, and, and weirdly, like, my boyfriend won some tickets to be, like, in the grandstand, which was in front of Buckingham Palace, to watch the parade go by. So on the... We did a lot of things during Queen Birthday weekend. Um, or not Queen Birthday, Queen Day weekend. Um, it's... For those of you not playing this game in, in your country, maybe you've decided to actually be independent of the Queen, unlike Australia. Um, <laughs> it was the 70th year anniversary of her sitting on the throne, so her jubilee. And there was a lot of parades. We got an extra free day here in London, so we got a Thursday holiday and a Friday holiday. Um, and there was parades and shows and stuff. And anyway, we got we won tickets to this event. Oh, I, I, was, I did not win. I was a hanger-on. Um, we went to some fancy party in a tent which had like Fortnum and Mason food, which is just like some super fancy, like expensive cookie, super fancy food inside a tent. Um, at one point, my boyfriend pointed at someone and was like, oh, I think that's Jeremy Irons. And I was like, ha ha ha, don't be stupid. That's not Jeremy Irons. It was Jeremy Irons. Um, he was also dressed a little bit like a pirate, which was very cool. Um, and then we we ran into some other random person who basically took pity on us because we were clearly the commoners in amongst like the posh people. <laughs> and he, he was like, so how did you get into the tent? Like basically he said in a very polite way, like how did you guys manage to worm your way in here? And we're like, oh yeah, we obviously don't belong here. Like we, we won some tickets. Um, <laughs> And then he was like, yeah, it's kind of this, like, lots of, like, celebrity or, like, minor celebrities from Britain here. And he pointed at some other people. But, I mean, we don't know enough about British celebrities to know who these people are. So we had this, we we just basically stuffed our face with as much food as we could. Um, I think I got, like, 30 strawberries worth of food. Um, and then we went to this parade, which was also really like like interesting. I mean, n- neither of us are royalists, but it was interesting to watch. And we were sitting in this grandstand and my boyfriend was like, oh, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know if we got the best seats. Those other people, they get to see the, the floats come by faster than us. And then suddenly everyone on the grandstand next to us stood up and like the royal family walked in and we're like okay we've got okay seats like we're at the stand <laughs> right next to like like prince charles and and all of the fancy <laughs> people and it's it's a super frustrating thing because like again i don't care about the royal family um but i still want to boast about this so i want to tell people <laughs> i was i was sitting next to prince charles but also like i i so <laughs> i i'm Uninvested, I'm anti-invested in them enough that I don't want to say this because firstly I sound like an asshole, and secondly, like I don't really support them. <laughs> but anyway, that's my story. I um I ate a lot of strawberries and then I watched um some kind of people who are famous for yeah being a family and being born into a family. It was very cool though. It was a pretty like pretty. In- it's always fun events, right? Like interesting I like that, to see. that they gave uh, holidays, extra holidays to the people. That's that's not only that they spend tons and tons of public money to have the parades <laughs> and stuff, but they're giving something back, which is uh, some some rest from working. And I think that's very I, good. I find it weird that the tone was like, oh, thank you, Queen, for serving us. Like, I think that was very... <laughs> it was strange to me. And it was also strange that those messages... I didn't, I didn't really watch much of the part that we weren't involved in. Um, but it seemed like those messages were delivered, A, by the Queen's own son, which seems like cheating um to have your son say oh you're awesome thank you mommy 
I think literally he said, thank you, mummy. And then the rest of it was um, delivered by like an animated cartoon bear. So Paddington bear said like, thank oh, you, your yeah. majesty. <laughs> I've seen and people being saying, upset that, that Paddington bear is a royalist and that he... Well, that's the thing. Then I was sort of wondering, is it just that like other celebrities don't want to associate themselves as royalists? Because I mean, obviously the the empire has not been great um so maybe other people want to divorce themselves from thanking the queen for like ruling the empire for 70 years so i was wondering if that's why they ended up with this i mean a cute cartoon bear and all but yeah very interesting so yeah very cute but i i would have expected him to be a communist in my in my when i read (laughs) when i read paddington to my kid and he really likes paddington um in my mind he he's a communist I mean, uh, well, if your kid likes him, that's a sign he's a capitalist. Isn't it? Like if that's, <laughs> if, for those of you playing at home, Yoram's child likes likes books about capitalism. That's what he's decided. <laughs> yeah, he he, we- he reads a lot of Ayn Rand, or I have to read Ayn, Ayn Rand. <laughs> and Atlas Shrugged every night before bed. We yeah. are going through that. Um, yeah, and he's like, Atlas should have shrugged. Papa. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, is that the moral of the story? <laughs> I don't know. Um, let's talk about something that we know more about, and that's plant science. It's the paper of the week. And this week I picked the paper. Um, it's the paper that's called Biofortified Tomatoes Provide a New ro- Root Route to Vitamin D Sufficiency by G. Lee and from the lab of Kathy Martin in the Johns Innes Center in Norwich, UK. And as the title suggests, it's about tomatoes and biofortification. Mm. Which is basically making it stronger fortifying it fortifying bio things i guess i want to say <laughs> yeah i think it's um yeah, yeah, we'll it, explain it better later, later on yeah um it's in general the addition of um sort of supplementary nutritional value to fruit that we eat that's not necessarily just sugars lipids or um like uh proteins that's the other other one of the three yeah so so here we're talking about vitamin d um which is i mean a vitamin as as the the name suggests it's a bit of a weird vitamin i mean it's something that humans can actually produce themselves um but it can be a little bit complicated we need to have this uv so basically sunlight involved to get um, conversion of I think there's a pro form that needs to be converted by UV into a pre form that then gets converted to the final sort of product that's vitamin D and then this actually can undergo some even more conversions and has products that are involved in lots of things related to human health um, one of the the most obvious one is um, calcium and bone strength um, but also it can be linked to cancer and some other pretty serious diseases in human so not having enough vitamin D is a problem. And this can also be a problem um, more so even it was mentioned because we have things like sunscreen and we avoid sunlight sometimes. So there's now a discussion about how we get enough vitamin D um, from basically our nutrition. If we're not going to be making yeah. enough, is there ways we can get it from our food sources? And there are some ways we can do this, but most of those ways actually involve animals. Yeah. So... There's not many vegan options to to get vitamin D, and even for like the like it's mostly in dairy products I found, like in milk, for example. But you have to then take in a considerable considerable amount of milk to make up for like the vitamin D deficiency. I even I just looked it up in Germany. um, Thirty percent of uh, adults, men and women. Uh, are deficient in vitamin D and only about 40% get sufficient amounts of vitamin D. Um, and they're not all vegans, you guys. So, like, it's not just a vegan problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it's, a, is... it's a weather problem and uh, also a nutrition pl- problem in Germany. I mean, this is a bit, it's, it's a bit, I mean, not controversial, but I, I do remember that was about like four or five years ago, maybe they sort of changed the recommended dietary intake um, in some countries. So I think there's still a little bit of debate about how much yeah. vitamin D you would need to have and how much you should take if you are supplementing. Yeah. Um, so it's a little bit of a discussion, but in any case, we, we do need vitamin D. Quite a lot of us are not getting enough, um, and this can particularly be a problem if you are like eating a plant-based diet. But it can generally be a problem for people. You mentioned that you you think it was mostly in dairy. I saw in the paper that they 
I mean, spoiler alert, they, they did buy a Fortify the tomatoes to get <laughs> extra vitamin D in them. And they, they ended up with tomatoes that had something like the equivalent of two eggs worth of vitamin D, oh, yeah. or I think 23 grams of tuna worth of vitamin, yeah. 28 grams of tuna. Sorry, um, it's, it's in the notes here. So obviously eggs and tuna also have some vitamin D in them. Yeah. Um, so when we take vitamin D, usually we take um, uh, we don't take the directly the vitamin D, but the precursor, pro vitamin D three, um, which is sort of the the form that our body can take it up, and then with sunlight it converts it into vitamin D, and this is the the stuff that we need, uh, and this is a compound pro vitamin D three that can be made from um, a compound in that we actually find in um, in plants. And it's called 7-DHC, and um, that is an intermediate uh, molecule in the synthesis of cholesterol and stero steroidal uh, glycoalkaloids, or SGA. So this is just like a group of metabolites that you find in, in the plant cells. And on the way of producing these, they make this 7-DHC uh, at some point, um, in, uh, especially in Solanacea, so tomatoes and related plants. I know I'm completely derailing a little bit here, but I just wanted to mention another cool fact is that fungi also make some sort of vitamin D, but they mm -hmm. make a different type. It's vitamin D2, um, which has slightly different functions. It's got some downstream, but I just thought, you know, we should mention fungi as well. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, we usually focus on animals and plants and let's not forget the fungi. Yeah. And so this 7-DHC is not really accumulating in the plants. It's just an intermediary. It's just happened. It's, it's made and immediately turned into something else um, uh, downstream. Uh, and it's turned into something uh, uh, called tomatines. So compounds in, in <laughs> tomatoes um, and in green fruit and esculeocytes uh, in ripe fruit. Um, so two different molecules that are actually then produced from this precursor and they, then in the ripened fruit you don't find almost any of the 7-DHC in the end. And so this paper sort of took advantage of a kind of cool thing about tomatoes specifically and that's that they and I mean their sort of cousin species they have two different pathways that they can use um, to to make these SGAs um, which means that they've got two different pathways that potentially have this intermediate of the, the vitamin D precursor. And because there's two pathways, there might be some redundancy in these pathways, which means you can disrupt one of the pathways. So sort of cut it short and get some more of this, this vitamin D precursor by not letting it get converted into other things um, without completely uh, damaging the plant and hurting all of the other things that like the metabolites it actually needs for its function. Yeah, and this is what they did. They used um, my favorite tool, CRISPR, to very easily just shut off this enzyme that converts 7-DHC into the next downstream product and so there was a stopgap in in the pathway so the plant makes it comes to 7-DHC and suddenly there's no more tool than like enzyme there left anymore that would continue to work on it and so it just accumulates there and the plant makes more of the 7-DHC and um, can't get rid of it and this is how it then accumulates in the plant and when they did that, the plants grew happily. They could, didn't see any yield penalty. You could imagine that if suddenly like a random molecule accumulates in the plant, that's usually uh, a good chance of disrupting anything in the plant because often then molecules have some sort of activity. And if this activity is not accounted for by the metabolism because it's usually not accumulating, you can have all sorts of um, unwanted effects that can destroy the plant, make it grow more uh, um, more poorly and or just not have enough yield or have smaller tomatoes or they taste awful or stuff like that. But they didn't observe anything like that. They, they grew with no yield penalty and with no phenotype that's uh, different from the wild type. But what they found is that in the ripe fruit, they actually had the 7-DHC compound accumulate. Um, and... They, I think they accumulated more in the leaves, but we can't eat the leaves of tomato. They're actually to uh, toxic to us. Bit poisonous, yeah. Yeah, but uh, in in the fruit, there's still um, a considerable amount left. Yeah, but the authors um, of, there was a related article, so there's a news and views on this paper, which basically describes the, the article in, in, in shorter summary. 
although it was already quite a short article, um, they they mentioned that maybe the leaves could sort of be used as a source to harvest this, like in a vegan, if you want to make a vegan-friendly mm-hmm. supplement, you could maybe do some sort of purifications if there's higher amounts in the leaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be a, a great use for all of this leftover biomass of, of the tomato plants. Uh, and then also, as expected, the downstream um, product of the 7-DHC that can't be made anymore because the enzyme is not working anymore, this uh, alpha-tomatine, um, was also downregulated and um, accumulated to lower levels. And they say in the paper this is potentially a, a positive thing because this has an anti-nutritional value. These things, uh, these tomatines are mm-hmm. sort of defense compounds of the tomato plant and also not nutritional to us. So not having these can actually make them more easily palpable um, than if it would still accumulate the, the tomatines. Yeah, so I don't know, if, did we mention yet that they also tried to see if they could convert this this precursor of the vitamin D directly into vitamin D and they did that basically by shining UV light on the, the fruits and the leaves um, to see if you could get this this actual conversion happening in the tomato instead of having to happen in humans and that seemed to to work fairly well. Um, I did notice in this associated article that they said, you know, this was maybe not super perfect. So there might be be further sort of ways to see if this could be optimized. And one suggestion is simply sun drying the tomatoes. So if you make sun dried tomatoes, then they can maybe convert the precursor to vitamin B as part of the drying process. And they also mentioned that there are some varieties of cultivar where they have already a defect in the pigment so they don't become so red they sort of are pink tomatoes and these actually might have better penetration of the uv into the center of the fruit just because they have less heavy pigments that act as these sort of uv sunscreens and and the authors sort of mention i think that in their paper as well that they could potentially uh, do the knockout of this gene to get the the precursor accumulating, but they could also do other knockouts to then increase the amount of vitamin D or or the the amount of the you know the final product as opposed to just the precursor. So they they can stack things. Yeah, and I think they they grew the, the tomato plants in a greenhouse, so with artificial light, and artificial light is usually um, devoid of U, uh, any UV radiation. So if you would imagine growing the plants not in greenhouses with artificial light, but in like greenhouses with sunlight or directly on a field, then um, you would have constant exposure with UV, and therefore I would assume more accumulation of this uh, of this precursor or this vitamin D3 straight up in, in the fruit. And uh, yeah, the amounts, you mentioned already in the sort of introduction, introduction to this, they managed to get, with the exposure to this UV light, uh, in just one um, one tomato and one fruit, they get the amount of this, as you said, like in like two medium-sized eggs or the vitamin D levels of 28 grams of tuna. So just having a little bit of a tomato salad, like in another like paragraph, they said it's about 20% of the recommended daily intake of um, vitamin B uh, D3 that you would get from one tomato. So if you imagine eating five tomatoes a day gives you the full amount of, of vitamin D that's recommended to ta- take in. That's not that much. That's very, And then if you think about any sort of form of concentrated tomato, it's very easy to, to get that. Um, so I think that's it's, it's very cool and very promising. Um, and on top of that, the same dual pathway that they used here that exists also in eggplant and potato and pepper. So there's more targets where you could pretty much do the same approach, do the same simple CRISPR thing, and then have more um, vitamin D in these uh, as well. And then suddenly you just by in in your regular cooking process you get you get more vitamin d in your cooking although i don't know how heat stable it is and tomatoes you can eat raw yeah, so eggplant potato and pepper my pepper you can eat raw but the others you usually cook so that's one of the big things that sort of came up in in this this more discussion piece on the paper is that we we don't know anything so far about the stability so it does that sort of stay as the tomatoes are stored in the shelf or you know if you process the tomatoes will the vitamin D hang around how that sort of looks um but it it does look quite interesting and quite promising yeah um one more thing i wanted to mention so yeah as you said this we mentioned at the start that this was would not work as well perhaps in non-solanaceae plants because they don't have the dual pathway and there's a reference here that says that um, similar mutations have actually been tried in in non-solanaceae species and you just got really really small plants so severe dwarfism was observed 
Um, and then the other thing I think is worth mentioning, it's not part of this paper, but in the news and views associated with the paper, they mentioned that there is a preprint that has sort of just come out now this year at a very similar timing by different a different group. So it's Cho and colleagues. And they basically used a very similar methods. They actually um, seem to have knocked out a different, the other copy of um, the gene. And they actually got a sort of a higher amount of the precursor potentially. So there might be a possibility to play around mm -hmm. with the, the other gene. One, one thing that we should also mention that also comes up in this opinion piece is that there are two there are two pathways they are somehow potentially redundant it looks like we can knock them out and things are kind of fine but this fine scenario is happening under quite nice conditions so you know we're growing these plants as you are in, in a nice greenhouse they get everything they need they get soil they get water they get you know nutrients and it's not certain if there is some need to have two pathways maybe under imperfect conditions under stressful conditions you yeah. do want to have this redundancy so it could be that these um tomatoes do suffer a little bit when they're sort of in the wide wide world but we we also don't know that yet yeah yeah this is like like always when we take stuff from the lab and uh, think oh why don't we just do this like whenever you then do field trials you realize it's much more complicated. They might be more it susceptible be more, yeah. to, to insects. Um, they might not grow as well as other like high-performing varieties and therefore are commercially not as valuable. Um, and on top of that, there's also for me the, the question of uh, if we have then as less controlled vitamin D intake through our food, can that be mm -hmm. a problematic problem? Like we know for some vitamins Is there an like vitamin possible? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. For some vitamins like vitamin C, you can't really overdose it, so it doesn't matter if it's in all of our foods. But for vitamin D, I don't know. But I just looked at the heat stability of vitamin D. And um, when because when we talk about eggs or tuna, we also don't eat those raw in most most of the times in most cultures. Um, and they're also still when cooked they even when baked in the oven for 40 minutes they retain about 40 percent of the vitamin d levels and when you cook them um the, especially the eggs you get around like 80 to 90 percent of the vitamin d that's retained so it seems to be fairly heat stable so if you then imagine cooking with potatoes or eggplants that are vitamin d fortified potentially um, that might still give you a boost in vitamin d I just looked up the, if you can get vitamin D poisoning from overdoing it, it turns out you can. Um, the, you can't really get it from eating foods. They say even fortified foods don't contain large enough amounts of vitamin D, but basically if you take, I think, um, maybe a hundred times the recommended dosage of vitamin D pills, then you might get um, an overdose. And the the consequence is hypercalcemia, so buildup of calcium in your blood, which sounds unpleasant, mm -hmm. um, and also can cause nausea, vomiting, weakness, frequency of urination, and other things. So it is possible. Um, it sounds like hard to achieve with a tomato that gives you 20% of the daily intake. Then you will have to have a lot of potatoes and probably also every day. So, or, or tomatoes, not potatoes, but yeah. I think the last thing that I want to mention here is my, my personal agenda, and which is, um, look, we told you oh that if, if, if you use CRISPR, you get cool stuff and quickly, because, I mean, CRISPR has been out for at most 10 years that, that we know about it. And within these 10 years, we had all of the development of the tools plus the development of the results. And this is just so much faster. Like, this is stuff that you just can't do in conventional this plant is, breeding at the same no time. This is no longer a plant podcast. It's a CRISPR agenda-pushing <laughs> podcast. I just, I, just want to, I just want to have said it because to, to me, this is important. That uh, As somebody living in the European Union where we are very stupid about the CRISPR regulation, um, this is the sort of stuff that we just can't have here because um, because of these regulations. Um, but I so. do think there was something, did, do I remember reading that there was a quite, it was quite recently discovered this pathway in Solanaceae? Yeah, the recently discovered pathway um, in Solanaceae. Let me just check. I think that's only a few years old that they discovered maybe the duplication of the pathway or this generally the pathway. So that's also part of the CRISPR thing. CRISPR thing. Mm-hmm. That you just you you find new results from other experiments and then you can just 
very easily within uh, very few years. Yeah, it's the rapid adoption, right? It's like rapid, yeah. rapid or like rapid application of something that's been yeah. newly discovered. I mean, I've printed out papers this time and it's really just making rustling noises on the microphone. So I might just put that to the side <laughs> and give up and looking for the reference. Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, I don't think it's it's much news to our listeners that, that this sort of stuff, if, if you do science well, you get cool results. And if we ban stuff for non-scientific reasons, <laughs> we don't get the cool stuff. Wow. Um, that was the Biofortified Tomatoes Provide a New Route to Vitamin D Sufficiency by G. Lee and colleagues. It came out in Nature Plants this month. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Yoram, I thought I would comment on your CRISPR love. There's a new <laughs> paper out that says that there are problems with CRISPR. No, it can't be. <laughs> my my ideology tells me that CRISPR is the best thing and you are spreading lies and fake news, Tegan. CRISPR believer. <laughs> um, no, this is this is not really uh, saying anything that's wrong with CRISPR, but it is showing um, w- how CRISPR can be harder or easier depending a little bit on, on the genes you're targeting. And yeah. in this case, it's particularly depending on the epigenetic features um, around the genes you're targeting. And I think this is kind of expected. So if you basically just imagine CRISPR as um, a pair of scissors coming in to cut a long string of DNA, basically this paper is showing that if the DNA, if that string has like random things attached to it, like chunky jewels, um, (laughs) or if it's tightly wound into a ball, it's much harder for the CRISPR scissors to basically find and efficiently cut the the place they're looking for. So I think um, this is, this is a new study. It's, it's good that the study has been done. I think it's not surprising that there are variations, um, but it's cool that there's sort of a bit more knowledge out there now. They found that there was up to, I think, 250-fold difference in the efficiency of the mutagenesis, depending on these different epigenetic features, so these different like modifications um, on the outside of the DNA, which can affect sort of how the DNA is physically structured and how it looks. Um, so that's quite a big thing and it can also explain why some people might be struggling to to cut so it's it's really good information um to have but it doesn't necessarily mean CRISPR is any worse than it was before it's just you know results may differ (laughs) but i also think it's important to have these kind of studies and also like talk about these publicly because um some in popular science some of the images you see around CRISPR is that it's this um we can do whatever we want at our will we just it's this text editor type manipulation of uh, DNA. And if we just see a gene, we can change the gene just because we have CRISPR. And it's not that simple. And I think it's also very important to to point that out. Uh, I recently read a paper where they wanted to do something in mitochondria with CRISPR and then realized they can't get the, the guide RNA that you need for CRISPR into the mitochondria. So you can't cut anything in the mitochondria with CRISPR. So you need something else to do this. And yeah, uh, so there's... There's clearly limitations to CRISPR, and it's very important to like openly discuss these without without like like just saying like, it's it's the best thing we can do whatever we want with it. But I found something that lets us oh, do no. even more with CRISPR. You had something where that's showing the limitations. There's a new method that um, was de- uh, developed it's called CRISPR Combo, um, and they can uh, they claim to be able to boost the the things you can do with CRISPR all in one go. Like we know that with CRISPR you can do like the little snippy snip of the DNA, just cutting it. There have been people developing base editors. So instead of cutting the DNA and having the repair machinery coming in, you just slightly change one letter to the other. Um, There's been other things where you only do like partial cuttings to to certain effects. There have been things where you can cut two sides and then have something else jump in there. Um, So lots and lots of individual approaches. And they now combined a method where they can do multiple of these different functionalities based in this CRISPR toolset at once in, in in one go in one shot um like cutting cutting uh, like knocking out one gene while upregulating another gene and they did that even without any cross reaction so while you were if you just throw these two things together you might 
you want to knock out gene A and upregulate gene B, and then by some cross-reaction, you get a knockout of gene B and an upregulation of gene A, sort of the opposite of what you want. That's bad. But they claim with their tool that just doesn't happen. You can mix okay. them all together and just in one shot um, knock, out, knock out a bunch of genes, uh, change the regulation of a bunch of other genes. And um, this seems to be pretty cool. I mean, this uh, I, I read the, the Science Daily report that is usually sort of more of a press release kind of thing but it's um um it's it's published and now they want to they tested this in um in arabidopsis and um so in in poplar where for example they in poplar they did a cool thing where poplar is usually then done in tissue culture and regenerating stuff in tissue culture so you take a little bit of a leaf or of, of the plant material you put it in a sterile medium and then a whole new plant grows from it can be very fiddly and hard. Like not, It doesn't always work. Um, it depends on the species. It depends on your growth media and conditions and stuff. But in Poplar, we know that there are some genes that influence the rege regeneration capability. And with their approach, they targeted one gene that they were interested in and also the regeneration genes at the same time and got like the preferred knockout that they wanted plus it also regenerated uh, regenerated better in the in the culture so it just so in just one go like they they targeted multiple things that helped the experiment and helped uh, to study the target gene that they that they looked at so they put everything sort of in in one cassette so that like if it if it got the if it got the gene they wanted, it also had to have got the boosting of regeneration. So yeah. basically, they're they're even like helping further select. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. Okay, that's that. I'm impressed. I'm and, impressed, CRISPR. Well done. And with that, now they they did they did it now on a couple of model organisms, and now they want to look into crops and see if they can. They already picked some like model vegetable, model fruit, and some staple crops that they want to see if that works there as well, because that would be very useful. Um, I found a study that was published in one of my favorite journals, which is People and Nature. It's People and Nature, as the, as the title of the journal suggests. And the title of this article itself is what caught my eye. I think we've discussed before that there's now some evidence that journal articles with funny titles are more likely to get cited. And I kind of love that fact. <laughs> and this article is called, Hey Tree, You Are My Friend. Assessing multiple values of nature through letters to trees. Um, and I think it's a little bit clear already from the title what's happening. Basically, maybe maybe I need a little bit more background. Basically, <laughs> the, the people went around and put sort of placards on trees. The, the tree said, hi, I'm a, a tree living my life here in the intervale. Did you know I have an email address? Please write me a letter. Share what's on your mind, feelings, thoughts, question, ideas. I'm here to listen. And you never know. I might even respond. And then it gives a little email address. Mm, for that's very cool. The trees. I now um, imagine so the tree is sending replies by some sort of, like literally the tree sending replies by some sort of way of attaching letters to, to the leaves, similar to what Iceland did. Um, for these out-of-office emails where some ponies stepped around on a keyboard and sent, <laughs> these were literally the emails that were sent back as, as your out-of-office reply. I want the tree to do that. I did not know Iceland did it. It's very cool. I think um, I think there was a tree that was tweeting for a while, wasn't there? I feel like we've discussed this before. Um, this is a bit more basic. I think they might be cheating a little bit and have some manpower behind the trees. They were kind of interested just to see what people would talk to um, the trees about. And overall, it's a lesson in sort of restructuring the way people think of trees. So they were kind of trying to encourage people to see trees beyond inanimate objects we've talked before about plant blindness this fact that we don't really view trees necessarily as living we see them sort of as a background scenery so they were trying to get into that and also see what people wanted from trees and, and what their values were I do think, I mean, there, there are some, some problems with this approach as far as education. Basically, you're really relying on people to run into the tree with an email address. Um, <laughs> so you've got quite limited exposure um, and you're selecting for a certain group of people who are already walking out in nature and, and seeing these trees. Of course, I mean, you can do it in sort of more urban environments. So it is possible to extend it a little bit. One thing I like is that they had some suggestions in the paper for what they should do in the future. Um, some of it was kind of basic stuff. So again, like making 
um, considering sort of more which trees would be have this little invitation to be pen pals on them so like having a more diverse group of trees so they could attract more people they also thought that they could include a bit more information about the tree itself on the sign so it would be a bit more educational when the people were doing that initial engagement and then one of the things I liked as much is sort of thinking about the fact that people might ask questions to the trees and consider a better approach to answer the questions. So they said that they were quite surprised at how dominant question asking of the trees was going to be and they weren't really certain how to deal with that. So, yeah. <laughs> they should have um, a new oracle. Uh, the trees should just give sort of precognitive answers to to the questions and just start a new myth this way if you send your your question to the oracle of the trees the, the <laughs> ancient w wisdom will send you a reply but then the replies are all just what you get when you you know those old um eight the eight <laughs> yeah. balls what was yeah. the round balls was it yeah called? the eight magic balls? eight balls yeah magic eight ball that's the name where it's just like sign say no ask me again later <laughs> looks like a yes <laughs> Yeah, um, but it's that's that's very cool. I just looked it up. There are wet uh, trees tweeting, and they were um, tweeting mm. sort of uh, pre-written short messages based on sensor data coming from trees, so temperature and moisture and stuff like that, and tree age. And so it would say uh, it was this and that temperature. This is the hot, uh, like the twenty-fourth hottest day that I can remember. Sort of playing back on the timeline so that the tree was I think we've mentioned alive. this before on the podcast. Yeah. In fact, we've we've told that story. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that's that's really cool. I also have a tree story. Um, mm -hmm. I have something uh, um, about maybe we have the, a new oldest tree. Um, oh dear. <laughs> yeah, we had a, a, like the the currently acknowledged oldest tree is um, somewhere in the United States in California. Um, it's a four thousand and eight hundred years old, and that's sort of I think that has been. Uh, properly confirmed um, and by properly confirmed i mean counting the rings that's the safest way to, to to do that on a tree and i i recently learned that you don't have to cut down the tree to do that i thought like you cut down the tree and it's like up to this point the tree was alive for this time but now it's not anymore uh, but and now you can you actually can take, take core samples you drill into it you drill through the center I, I and then you count the rings there that's not a super new thing i think they've been it was doing new that to me like it's not it's not ah. mm. <laughs> i mean we've had that about the, the guy who cut down the oldest tree without yeah like he's so. like this tree looks super old should we study it and see how old it is and then he found it was like three times older than any other tree that had ever been yeah but i think yeah. even then they Oopsies. could take core samples but they sort of the drills broke because the the wood was so hard and they decided to cut it then down to to count it and then they realized oops, oops. We, <laughs> we we did a bad thing here um but now in uh, in the andes mo uh, mountain regions in chile um they found a tree that's they that they called a gran abuelo which is translated to great grandfather and um they wanted to know how old this tree is it's apparently a tourist attraction and they drilled into this but they couldn't get uh, down to the center of the tree because it's so big they didn't have drill they didn't have equipment that was capable of drilling um right uh, to the center there so they could count some rings but they couldn't count all of the rings and so now hmm? can you match it yeah sort That's, of they can you because i think you could you can sort of guess based on sort of things like the thickness of the rings and other features how what the climate environments were in the years the ring were formed and can you sort of count backwards by overlapping with other things from that time period yeah they that's pretty much what they did they uh, wrote a computer program that uh, would correlate from other data points that they would have they would build a model of uh, just partial tree ring counts to the actual age and that would give them an interval of time where this what is tr the, the age of this tree could be and uh, this ranged from 4,100 years old to uh, 6,000 years old um, where sort of the 80% confidence interv interval was that it's older than 5,000 years so that would make it older than the currently known oldest tree 
Um, so based on their model, they say this tree is the, the, the oldest tree that we know of right now. But tree, tree ring counting experts say the only good way to know the age of a tree is to count the rings and you have to count all of them, not just measure parts of them and then um, model the rest. And so they're not really agreeing with this. They're saying... yeah. The, but um, it's literally from the association of tree ring counting that they say you have to count all of the rings so you can also take that with a grain of salt um and no like, oh, you should surely you should trust them right I mean, like, it, it is true but i also f- like then they're, uh, they're not, not the hiding. association of tree ring modeling are they they're yeah. just the tree yeah. and also like I the see. tree ring modelers they're not saying like we know for a hundred percent certainty that is this age we modeled and we have quite a big range it could be younger than the the oldest tree that we know and it could be much older but sort of in the middle where we're more confident is is the time that we're giving here and also like always when you talk about these these things um humans are the worst um the tourism that they're doing around this tree is is actually harming the tree they they built a tree visitor platform that's pressing down on the roots and it's going quite closely around the tree um which is bad for the tree and it might cause the tree to to die eventually and make it easier to count it yeah exactly that's kidding um (laughs) I have a couple of very quick stories. One is that there was a correspondence in Current Biology that came out also earlier this month. And it's called Engagement with Indigenous People Preserves Local Knowledge and Biodiversity Alike. And this is basically the fact that they have discovered now, well, it has been sort of described now scientifically, and I'm using that with very like strong inverted commas around it, that two... There's there's a a plant. How do I even explain this? There's a plant. The plant was called Artocarpus odoratismus. Something like that. Mm-hmm. I pronounced it wrong, I'm sure. Um, it had this scientific name. It was a species as described by sort of Western science. Having said that, everybody who lived around this plant was like, don't be stupid, that's two plants. And obviously I am I'm paraphrasing here. But they basically acknowledged that there was two different types of, of plant and they had two different names. They have sort of different um, features as well. So one of them has smaller leaves, um, less sweet th- fruits, thinner pulp. So stuff that's actually quite relevant for human consumption and things like that. So they they gave them different names, but then something happened and somebody decided that they were in fact the same species, probably didn't look very closely, um, and they got given just a single species name, which is this Odoratismus. Anyway, as it turns out, not the same thing. <laughs> Two different species. Um, the people in the area were right all along. Yeah, so this is the, the Iban people and the Dusun peoples. They... They knew it was two species of fruits. Um, they are the ones who live in this area where the fruits are found. It's the Sarawak region, which is sort of in Southeast Asia area. So um, it's uh, around, how do I describe this? Sort of in the middle, it's a large island in in the middle of the Philippines, Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, or Vietnam, all kind of around it. It's this, this area there. Um, Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very important places for biodiversity, these these areas. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, so that was one small thing. The other small thing I, I found was a study that was looking at um, the gene expression of different photoreceptors. This is um, things that receive light and then tend to sort of send signals in throughout the plant in response to this light um, within Arabidopsis, within our favorite model plant. And they were just um, looking at how these genes changed their expression in response to different lighting sources. And here they were using a biophilic LED lighting system. So this is kind of the newer generation of lights. They're now using LED lighting and they're also trying to be more imitating of natural sunlight. So this is this biophilic thing. It's it's trying to not be an artificial light, but it's trying to get as close to sunlight as possible. And in this experiment, they were using one specific um, system. It's called Colux. I think that's not the main thing I found interesting. Rather, um, they were comparing using that um, with using sort of a traditional lighting system. And they were looking at how the these genes, these light responsive genes differed between the two of them. Um, so what they were using as, a, as the control was high pressure sodium lamps. Um, 
And there they found that when they changed the intensity of the lights, they got quite a lot of fluctuation in the levels of these these genes. Whereas with the biophilic, the more natural style of lights, the expression levels didn't change as much. Um, so what that means, I don't know, but I think it's kind of interesting. Well, I mean, <laughs> I think it's sort of this this new thing of going towards getting better at imitating natural environments but in controlled ways and mm -hmm. potentially seeing that you know again as we mentioned earlier during the paper like some of the things we've seen in the light in the lab might be because of the lab as opposed to what we see in natural conditions and if we move towards these more natural conditions that can be beneficial so i think this is kind of an yeah. interesting thing that's that's happening with these lead lights and, and getting you know a yeah. new generation of lighting yeah, I mean, we've we've seen just based on the change in technology that we have just new studies coming out from looking at are these actually comparable to really finding new things that we couldn't see before because now we have with these LED lights we can have distinct wavelengths that we uh, excite. like excite instead of the, these like older kinds that had like a very broad spectrum of mm. of wavelengths and we we like on, only with considerable effort we could change like with uh, expensive filters and stuff, we could change the, ex the the wavelengths that get on there. And now we can very easily fine tune what kind of, of light these plants see and then learn from that. Um, and I think it's also that now with the LED lights, they usually when you change the intensity of them, you can't really dim them. You just change how often they turn on and off because they have this frequency of turning on and off. And so you sort of shorten the time that they're actually on and that then gives you on average a lower intensity of the light and oh, interesting. this doesn't change as much the the wavelength compared to like a conventional sodium light where if you just let it run less hot and then it makes less light and then that changes also the sort of composition of wavelengths is my layman understanding of the the like how these lamps are different um and how this then can influence the the plants there um, but light and color and, and plants is also a good segue into my next topic. And um, we talked about blue quite often here, and so I will make this short. Um, most of the time when we find blue in, uh, in nature, it's not actually a blue pigment or a dye or anything. Um, most of the time, it's some other effect. Sometimes it's just a, like a very deep purple that we perceive as blue. Um, like blueberries, for example, they are not really like when you extract the color from them, they're not really blue. Um, but very often it's physical effects. Like if you think the wings of a butterfly, you have nanostructures on them that reflect the light in a certain way and then they look blue. And there's also um, uh, berries, like the one from Vibonum, viburnum tinus or viburnum tinus um, that have little nanostructures of lipids in their skin and these nanostructures of these lipids again refracts the light in a certain way that they appear blue to us uh, but when you actually hold them up to the light um, and sort of just look straight through them with a strong light they are actually transparent there's no pigment in there it's just just a physical effect of uh, bending the light in these tiny lipid droplets. And now they've, they, there was this one plant known that does this. And now they found another plant, Lantana strigocamara, um, that has also berries that look blue. And it's also down to this nanostructure of lipids that reflects and breaks the light. Um, and so now we only know these two plant species that do that. But once you found two, you probably find more. So there's... Um, it's likely that there's more plants that do this, but um, we're still in the beginning of this search of, of this quest for lots of other weirdo blue plants. Um, given that it's the structural thing, is that like a, a, a feature that it will always be blue instead of being different colors? Because it's kind of like reflecty and the lipids. I don't really understand enough about how physics and light work to, to answer this, but it seems like it makes sense to me that it's blue, but that's only because I'm imagining that it's like blue reflection of... Yeah, I mean, blue. The blue light is the more energy intensive light. This is what I know. Um, but it's still it's still reflecting. It's not like actually yeah. changing wavelengths, right? So then it's just reflecting yeah. what's around yeah. somehow. Yeah, it's not so a fluorescence or something. So mm. yeah, yeah. I wonder, like uh, physicists, I, get in contact. Thanks. <laughs> yes, please, please explain to us if if it's possible to have other things um, that's 
other colors based on these effects. But I mean, I think like on 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 like butterfly wings that have can have more colors or you can also have like greenish hues depending on the you angle can have, like, you can have green iridescence but then i think that's a combination of of the color as well i guess this also is though right there also is some yeah. pigment in it as well. but in this case you said there is no pigment at all is that true yeah they like in the in the article they said that um they can they appear translucent in direct light they're just okay. mm-hmm. colorless um but yeah, against the dark background, they are actually or they appear blue. Cat fact. I have pounced upon the perfect cat fact, um, <laughs> which seems to be making the round today. I'm actually shocked that Yarv didn't find it because he's usually much better at finding all things cat. It turns out that there is a study that has come out today in the journal iScience. Um, in fact, it was yesterday it was published. Yoram. How could I miss it? Get your shit together. Um, so this is the 14th of June in iScience. It's something that is very dear to our heart because it follows up with the idea of why cats like catnip. The study is domestic cat damage to plant leaves containing iridoids enhances chemical repellency to pests. Um, so iridoids are these chemicals and it's found in catnip, which is Nepeta cataria, as well as some other species. Um, and the example used in this paper is silvervine, which is Actinidia polygamma. Um, and these can have repellent effects for insects. And it's sort of being proposed as one of the reasons why maybe cats like to rub on these plants because it might give them i mean it's clearly also making them high but like evolutionarily speaking it can give them potentially an advantage against bugs in this study it seemed like the study was quite focused on the cats and the rubbing um they let the cats rub themselves on the silver vine as well as the catnip and they found that like perhaps kind of weirdly the cats seem to be equally interested in rubbing themselves on the silver vine which has like fairly low amounts of the complex as they were uh, rubbing themselves on catnip i also noticed in the one of the journal articles written about this study that it seems that not all cats even respond to catnip so again there's a little bit of uncertainty here but nonetheless there is this discussion that a bit regardless of um, what the cats are doing, the leaf damage can also potentially be helpful to the plant if the plant is using the compounds to restrict to get rid of bugs. Um, but it could be sort of a bit of a win-win if you know the cats are rubbing and they're enjoying it, and then it's not. I mean, normally as a plant, that would not be <laughs> ideal if if a cat is squashing you. Um, but maybe there's some win because by squashing the plant, they actually end up you know, releasing more of these olfactory compounds, which are <laughs> removing bugs. It's like, like the tree that, that recruits the, uh, the ants to protect itself, this acacia um, that has the ants living on them and yeah. fighting for it. And this is like this plant, which is like, hey, I, I am, I'm a cat plant. I will attract the cats to protect me by squishing Look, me. <laughs> we all have our choices. Um, I'm also going to, Yarm, I've put now the, the full text link there. I want you to click on that. Because I want to really encourage everybody to go not only and read the articles, <laughs> there are many, but also please do check out the article. Figure one is beautiful. It, it mostly involves um, cartoons of cats either enhanced anointing themselves on the catnip, which is rubbing and rolling, or doing leaf damage, which is licking and chewing, and then it shows cats repelling mosquitoes. So there's lots of like little cartoon cats running around. Um, and then if you scroll down, figure two has photographs of the cat involved licking or chewing the leaves, as well as photographs of the leaves post-cat, um, so damaged by the cat. And then if you keep on scrolling down, um, video S1 is basically one and a half, half minutes or one, well, just over one minute of a very cute laboratory cat, um, they say, just eating some vines. Um, so this looks like my cat. It looks exactly like my cat. Like this could be hurt so much. It's I haven't. I have to admit, I haven't read the full paper, but it's a really great paper. And how many papers can you say that about? You know, like I've not read it, but I can fully endorse this. <laughs> um, in always, um, definitely go and yeah. check that one out. 
Yeah, we have catnip in a garden, and this now turned our garden into a hub of the neighborhood's cats um, that some of them like each other, some hate each other, and so we just have constant cat screaming now. At all times of day, you hear some cat screaming nearby or in the distance um, because they... And they seem to, like, co concentrate in our garden. So often you find, like, They're our cats your... and, like, strange cats coming there now and... The, and our catnip is completely squashed um so the cats maybe go, the plant go to wants that to be happening yeah i'm it's it's all going to plan for the plant um it really works out for it <laughs> okay i think that is it from us that's all of our planty things that we want to talk about today so we will leave yoram with his garden full of weird plant squashing cats um if you want to contact either of us you can find yoram on twitter uh, that's at plants for pets you can also find me on instagram occasionally on facebook it's at plants and for pets and we do have a website which is www.plantsandperpets.com where we've written some articles about various things that we love about plants as always our opening and closing music is caravana by philip cross <laughs> And until next week. Goodbye.